Welcome to Tisky Sour. Dahlia Gabriel is away today. She's usually my co-host on a Wednesday, but you will be in very safe hands because I'm joined this evening by Owen Jones. He'll be joining me in a little while. We're going to be talking about the privatization of Channel 4 or the proposed privatization of Channel 4. And also two more slaps that Rishi Sunak has given to Britain's working class. Before that, though, I'm going to be speaking about the controversy over the Tories' appalling decision to exclude trans people from their conversion therapy ban. Safe to be me was due to be the first ever international LGBT plus conference hosted by the UK government. It was set to take place this summer on the 50th anniversary of London's first Pride March, but it's now been cancelled by Boris Johnson. A decision which became inevitable after over 100 LGBT groups decided to pull out. The boycott was in response to a series of U-turns the Tories have made on banning conversion therapy. The first of those U-turns became apparent last Thursday. A government document leaked to ITV said, The PM has agreed we should not move forward with the legislation to ban LGBT conversion therapy. While many were concerned about the bill and criticised us for publishing it, we will face a noisy backlash from LGBT groups and some parliamentarians when we announce we do not intend to proceed. And a government spokesperson confirmed the broken promise, saying having explored this sensitive issue in great depth, the government has decided to proceed by reviewing how existing law can be deployed more effectively to prevent this in the quickest way possible and explore the use of other non-legislative measures. That announcement broke a promise made by both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, and it did create quite an outcry. That led to the government within hours U-turning on the U-turn. Paul Brand from ITV said, The Prime Minister has changed his mind off the back of the reaction to our report, and he will now ban conversion therapy after all. Senior government source absolutely assures me it'll be in the Queen's speech. But only gay conversion therapy not trans. And that last point is crucial. The government's original promise had been to ban LGBT conversion therapy. It's now been watered down to a ban on LGB conversion therapy. And it's that exclusion of trans people which has led to a new wave of protest. The UK's largest LGBT group, Stonewall, released a statement saying this, due to the Prime Minister's broken promise on protecting trans people from the harms of conversion therapy, we regret that we are withdrawing Stonewall support for the UK government Safe to Be Me conference. We will only be able to participate if the Prime Minister reverts to his promise for a trans-inclusive ban on conversion therapy. It is apparent that trans people have once again been sacrificed for political gain. That statement was co-signed by 100 LGBT groups and they've been joined by the man appointed by the, governments, by the government as LGBT business champion. He has resigned from the role and said this to Paul Brand. And my principles are around LGBT inclusion. And I feel what the government is doing is trying to create a wedge between LGB people and trans people. I think it's the wrong approach and um, I disagree with the policy. Were you aware that the government was about to drop its ban on conversion therapy before we broke the story last Thursday? This came as a complete bolt out of the blue, not just to me, but to the Minister for Women and Equalities, to the LGBT um, envoy. I was completely shocked. And you've sat in that room with the powers that be. How would you characterise their approach to trans people? I think Britain needs a strategy 
government needs a strategy for trans people. I can't see a strategy at the moment. I think, sadly, we have a tabloid debate going on about people's lives. It's not a respectful debate. It's turned into a woke war. It's turned into a wedge issue. That's not my kind of politics. The U-turn on trans conversion therapy has also been opposed by Jamie Wallace, the UK's first openly trans MP, and by some religious leaders, including a former Archbishop of Canterbury. Significantly, the decision appears to have united the relevant medical authorities, the British Medical Association, Royal College of Psychiatrists and the UK Council for Psychotherapy have all spoken out against the exclusion of trans conversion therapy from any ban. The BMA said, It's with great dismay to read reports that the conversion therapy ban will not extend to transgender people, despite there being no evidence whatsoever that it is a credible form of medicine. In fact, conversion therapy has been debunked countless times as an unethical and damaging practice that preys on victims of homophobia, transphobia, discrimination and bullying. For those subjected to it, it can also increase the risk of long-lasting psychological harm, substance abuse or even suicide. The BMA has long opposed conversion therapy and believes it must be banned in its entirety. So that's the comments from the medical establishment. But on Sky News this morning, Health Secretary Sajid Javid explained why he disagrees. When it comes to conversion therapy, it is absolutely right, as the government has said, that we, we ban the so-called you know, conversion therapy uh, for LGB people. When it comes to trans, I do think that we need to be uh, more careful. You, know, you ask me again as health secretary, uh, in my mind is, for example, is the recent report by Dr. Hilary Cash. She's one of the, the most experienced pediatricians in this country. She just published an interim report just a few weeks ago. And she talked about uh, how children and young people, uh, when they, uh, when they you know, say they have gender dysphoria, it is right for medical experts to, to be able to question that and to determine that what the cause might be. Is it a genuine case of uh, gender identity dysphoria? Or could it be that that individual is suffering from some child sex abuse, for example? Or could it be linked to bullying? So I think it is it is right to take the approach that we have, which is to ban uh, conversion therapy for LGP, uh, LGB, but, but to take a, a, a much more uh, sort of sensitive approach when it comes to trans. Earlier today, I spoke to Ugla Stefania, an author, feminist and trans advocate, and I asked her to respond to those comments from Sajid Javid. There's an obvious difference between conversion therapy and a doctor giving a young person the care that they need and and making sure they're going through a diagnostic period where they make sure that the kid is getting the, the services that they need. And I think saying that Medical professionals can't determine that whether a child is, is really trans and that this conversion therapy ban would somehow impact that shows a lack of, of understanding of what conversion therapy really is. Because conversion therapy is essentially where someone tries to stop someone from being something they are. And there's a long history of, of conversion therapy, you know, being essentially torture. But modern conversion therapy mostly is more about the sort of practices where you try to make someone stop being trans. And that's not the services that they're giving at the Tavistock or at any other gender identity service for young people. So I think it just shows a, a level of ignorance about these services because that's really not what's happening with these services. And secondly, I think everything he sort of said about 
trans healthcare and and why we shouldn't help trans kids and how this is is what they said about gay people as well. You know, why we shouldn't be supporting gay, lesbian, and, and bisexual people and their identity. So I think it's it's really concerning that we're always recycling these sort of same arguments against trans people that have historically been used against the rest of the community. So I think, to me, there is a fundamental misunderstanding of, of what conversion therapy is and gender affirmative care is for young people. Let's talk a bit more specifically about what what gender affirming care is or, or what good health care is for someone suffering from gender dysphoria because I suppose the argument for the people who say we shouldn't ban trans conversion therapy is that they worry that if you have a doctor someone comes to them and says I've got gender dysphoria or a counsellor or whoever someone comes to them and says I've got gender dysphoria they say well you might be trans or this might be transitionary let's have a discussion about this I'm not coming here with any sort of pre-defined ideas about which one of these is going on the the panic is that that doctor will be told that's essentially conversion therapy. If someone comes to you and says they're suffering gender dysphoria, you have to say, well, that means you're trans. Here's your hormones. Could you sort of address that concern, which is basically what's what's being voiced as the argument as to why trans conversion therapy can't be banned? Yeah, so I think it's important to know that there is a specialized service that specifically deals with this. So if someone brings their child to a doctor, say their GP, the first thing the GP should do is refer them to a gender identity clinic, which deals these services. And there is a real difference between giving someone conversion therapy and then saying, oh, okay, let's explore and, and, and see what's going on and, and see how we can, we, we can help you. Because conversion therapy isn't about helping young people do anything. Conversion therapy is about stopping someone from being something that they are. So if people are concerned that this is going to happen, I think they need to really understand the difference between what conversion therapy is and how it's given to people, whereas to how actual professional services are given to young people when they come and say that they're questioning their gender or whatever it is, because there is a, a real difference between the two services. How many people, by your understanding, are subject to conversion therapy if the government do fail to to ban it how many people might have to go through conversion therapy that otherwise wouldn't have done i think in their lgbt survey from 2018 which was um not just young people but i think everybody in general there was percentage that showed it up to nine percent of trans people had been offered conversion therapy and this is nearly twice as much when we look at gay lesbian and bisexual people so According to the government's own data, trans people are much more vulnerable to being offered conversion therapy and are also more vulnerable to being victims that have actually undergone conversion therapy. So it doesn't make any sense to me that the government would deliberately exclude trans people from this ban, given that their own evidence shows that they're even more vulnerable to it. So I think people don't understand how many people are actually being offered this because 9% of of trans people in the UK is quite a high number in the big scheme of things. And the LGBT community is still suffering this and is still suffering this today. So the fact that the government isn't doing their utmost to protect trans people as well is really shocking to me and shows a lack of commitment to the LGBT community as a whole. And so our audience gets a bit more understanding about, you know, what 
conversion therapy is who's doing it. Do you have an idea of what groups are currently offering trans conversion therapy or you know, pressuring people to take it? The biggest group that's doing conversion therapy is usually faith-based groups. And there are some medical professionals, according to the 2018 LGBT survey, but the vast majority lies in the hands of, of faith-based groups. And conversion therapy can range from being a lot of things, you know, it it can range from being sort of a faith-inspired ritual where they're trying to to do some sort of an exorcism because they believe someone's been possessed by a demon, to them showing them images or pictures or videos of people who are LGBT, while at the same time trying to evoke really negative emotions from them. So conversion therapy can also be electroshock therapy, even though that is a lot more rare um, than it used to be. But there are members of our community that have undergone electroshock therapy and really, really shocking therapy where they've been humiliated um, and their dignity has been completely destroyed. And this has emotional impact for the rest of their lives. And some people have even taken their own life as a result of conversion therapy. So I think people really need to understand the impact it can have upon someone's life to have to undergo conversion therapy and being taught that a part of them is wrong and that's something that they shouldn't be or couldn't be. And that's going to affect you for the rest of your life, whether that's in your own personal life, in relationships with other people, or how you participate in, in society in general. So I think people really need to understand the harm that conversion therapy can have on people. Let's talk about an issue separate from the conversion therapy story. There's been lots of debate, obviously, in the media about women's spaces, protecting women's spaces and trans rights and how they intersect. The EHRC has got involved in this debate and they've put out advice on how organisations can successfully implement the Equalities Act. And I have to say, it has some really, really strange advice in it or, or advice that looks strange to me anyway. So I want to read out one example they gave of how organizations can effectively implement the Equalities Act and, and get your comment on it. So they say, example, a community center has separate male and female toilets. It conducts a survey in which some service users say that they would not use the center if the toilets were open to members of the opposite biological sex for reasons of privacy and dignity or because of their religious belief. It decides to introduce an additional gender-neutral toilet. It puts up signs telling all users that they may use either the toilet for their biological sex or to use the gender-neutral toilet if they feel more comfortable doing so. And as I said, this is put forward as a good solution that an organization could take. Could I get your comment on, on what you make of, of that example which the EHRC have given there? I mean, I think this advice could actually make organizations end up doing something unlawful because... The Equality Act of 2010 clearly states that people can use facilities um, on the basis of gender assignments. So it means that trans people are legally allowed to use the gendered spaces that they need to use. So I think it's really confusing that the, the Equality Commission are using this type of terminology because they're deliberately using biologic sex as a way to exclude trans people. Whereas in the Equality Act or in the law, gender and sex are quite indistinguishable. So them specifically using biological sex and framing it in this way makes it seem as if they're just excluding men and women from using these facilities, whereas 
the underlying messages that they want to exclude trans people from using these. And I think it's really concerning that a an organization that's supposed to uphold dignity and human rights for people is effectively giving a how-to guide on how to exclude a vulnerable group in society from using facilities that they're legally allowed to use and facilities that they've been using for decades. That was Ugla Stefania talking to me earlier today. And we can see philosophy tubers in the chat as well. We're all big fans at Navarra. I think we're going to get up one of the comments now. I wish cis people would move beyond seeing us as sufferers of gender dysphoria, a disease they made up to pathologize us. Super interesting thoughts there. I don't need to tell you to check out Philosophy Tube's channel because I'm, I'm sure you have already. We are going to go straight to our next story. In a series of posts on social media, Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries has announced that she intends to privatize Channel 4. She said, Channel 4 rightly holds a cherished place in British life, and I want that to remain the case. I have come to the conclusion that government ownership is holding Channel 4 back from competing against streaming giants like Netflix and Amazon. A change of ownership will give Channel 4 the tools and freedom to flourish and thrive as a public service broadcaster long into the future. I will set out the future plan for Channel 4 in a white paper in due course. Privatizing Channel 4 would be a massive move. We'll explain in a moment why it's a terrible idea. First, though, just a reminder of the competence of the person overseeing this change. I think it's right that um, a public service broadcaster um, in the rapidly changing digital environment that we're in at the moment, I think the future and the longevity of that broadcaster should be brought into question and should be, particularly when it's a receipt of taxpayers' money, it is our responsibility to evaluate whether taxpayers are receiving value for money and whether that, that model is sustainable in the future. I think it's absolutely right and proper that we should do so. And that is the process we're going through. So, so I would argue that to say that just because Channel 4 has been established as a public service broadcaster and just because it's in receipt of public money, we should never kind of audit the future of Channel 4 and we should never evaluate how Channel 4 looks in the future and whether or not it's a sustainable and viable model. It's quite right that the government should do that. But, but Channel 4 is not like the BBC. Uh, it, it, it's not in receipt of licence fee money. It, no. it, it makes its money from commercial operations. And so, although it's, yeah, and that... I mean, there are a range of views. Obviously, Channel 4 has taken a particular position uh, on the future. Um, there's so can I just say that the discussions about the what we do with Channel 4 and how we evaluate Channel 4 also happened before I arrived yeah. in my post. That was Dory speaking to MPs four months ago. She presumably now knows Channel 4 isn't publicly funded, but her plan to privatise the company does seem pretty short-sighted. She said proceeds from Channel 4 sale will be invested in left-behind areas, investing in indies and creative skills desperately needed in our rapidly growing creative industries. We made more films here in last Q 2021 than Hollywood. Many more studios opening. Funding creative skills is key. Now, it's unclear how much any sale of Channel 4 would make. We'll get onto the details of that in one moment. But the key point here is that she says, we made more films in the UK in the last quarter of 2021 than Hollywood, with many more studios opening. Now, to me, this suggests our creative industries are already a success. 
And it turns out one of the reasons they are so successful is because of organizations like Channel 4. Former Channel 4 editor-at-large, Dorothy Burns, explains. The government has said that it hopes to make a billion pounds. I'm really not sure it's going to make a billion pounds. But it has also said that it will use that money to invest in independent production company. And that's the bit that really doesn't make sense because all Channel 4's programmes are made by independent production companies. Channel 4 doesn't make any of its own programmes. So if you wanted to support independent production companies, you would invent Channel 4, which is exactly what Margaret Thatcher did. But what the government's she invented case... Channel 4 in order yeah. to invent the independent production company sector, which has made billions and billions for this country and is still doing so. That's right. Channel 4 has always been banned from producing its own shows and instead is committed to buying all the shows it broadcasts from other producers. That's meant the channel has supported the growth of production companies such as Red, who created Queer as Folk and launched the career of Russell T. Davies, or Planet 24, who created The Big Breakfast. It's a model which is not a million miles from how Netflix or Amazon operate. Organisations Dorries wants Channel 4 to ape, of course. But there is a key difference because Channel 4 is government-owned. We have a say over what kind of content gets produced. For example, unlike Netflix or Amazon, Channel 4 are mandated to produce high-quality news reporting and investigations, as well as commission from independent and homegrown talent. The Amazon and Netflixes of the world won't reliably produce this, because it doesn't turn an easy profit. But public organisations like Channel 4 do. Privatise it and you risk cutting off a long-term supply of cash for production companies that make high-quality or high-risk TV. And that's much more important to the creative industries than any one-off windfall Dorries is talking about. And now we can get on to how much that one-off windfall would be. The Guardian reports Ender's analysis has said that Channel 4's value could be anywhere between £600 million and £1.5 billion, depending on how much freedom over its model a new owner is given. There's, of course, a big difference between £600 million and £1.5 billion. And the large range is partly because we still don't know exactly what any buyer would be buying. Would they be purchasing an organisation with a mandate to produce independent but potentially unprofitable journalism, as well as cheap but commercially successful content? Or would they be buying something with no strings attached? It goes without saying that the fewer the regulations, the more valuable the company is to shareholders, which means the bigger the windfall for the creative industries today, the less likely they are to get a stable income in the future. I'm joined now by Owen Jones. Owen, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us this evening. Oi, oi, good to see you. How you doing? Very well. I want your take on the Channel 4 sale. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what's interesting about it is it, it, it does smack of Orbanism. Victor Orban is the autocratic leader of Hungary who hollowed out democracy in Hungary partly by essentially shutting down media outlets which were deemed to be too critical. And there's no question at all that the government see Channel 4 as a bastion of kind of liberal, anti-Brexit, anti-Toryism of some description. What I think really riles them, if you look at Channel 4's charter, they place representing unheard voices as a high priority. They attract younger audiences disproportionately who aren't exactly well disposed towards Toryism. 
and, and it is striking. Their cultural output is very unique. It's a sin, for example, this iconic drama by Russell T. Davies, which explored the impact of HIV AIDS on gay and bisexual men in the 1980s. That would not have been commissioned anywhere else. I mean, you can see all the comedies as well. May Martin's Feel Good, the experiences of a non-binary comedian, Ashling these This Way Up. You know, all black broadcasting day that they did last year. These are kind of cultural forms you just don't see elsewhere. Now, where they, the government have a point, by the way, in that Channel 4 does face challenges, as all broadcasters do right now, that the rise of streaming is carving off existing audiences, not least young people. I mean, there's no question that's the case. Advertising is migrating elsewhere, Google, Facebook, that kind of thing. And given Channel 4 depends on that for 90% of its income, that is an issue. And, and the fact that it has commercial breaks annoys people who watch Netflix and they don't have that. But the government's consultation was rigged in favour of privatisation. And if you listen to, for example, the Media Reform Coalition, they suggested, because opponents say, well, your solution is basically to get, well, they said a Grammy in Stockport, which is where I'm from, to foot the bill. But the Media Reform Coalition had a good idea, which you tax booming Google and Facebook advertising, and that would provide an alternative stream of, of revenue. Even when UK advertising dipped in the pandemic, it's over £23 billion a year. So if you just tax that 5%, then that would raise up to £1.2 billion, which would be allow for Channel 4 to be funded without any advertising whatsoever. So if the issue is these big streamers like Netflix and so on, and they don't have any advertising on them, then, then obviously the solution is to put a tax on the booming advertising that exists in this country, which has migrated from, for example, Channel 4. But they haven't done that because they're ideologically committed to privatization they don't believe the state should own things and they see of course channel 4 as a threat politically because it provides views and perspectives that other broadcasters don't let's talk about what other motives might be behind this then if it's not honestly an attempt by nadine doris to support the cultural industries of britain some political reaction backbench tory mp julian knight has said this Now, elephant in the room time, is this being done for revenge for Channel 4's biased coverage of the likes of Brexit and personal attacks on the Prime Minister? The timing of the announcement 7pm coinciding with Channel 4 News was very telling. Now, whether or not their coverage is biased is up for you to decide. But what is certainly true is that Channel 4 has angered the Tories in the recent past. During the 2019 election, Boris Johnson didn't turn up to a debate between party leaders on the climate emergency. And this happened. We kept the invitations open to the leaders of the Conservative Party and the Brexit Party. They have not taken up their places yet. Instead, a reminder, the ice caps are melting as politicians around the globe fail to cut greenhouse gas emissions in time to stop rising temperatures. And Dorries may have personal reasons to want revenge. In February, she gave this car crash interview to Channel 4 News. One of the things the Prime Minister said today in the House of Commons that was basically untrue and clearly untrue was his allegation that Keir Starmer was responsible for not prosecuting Jimmy Savile. How how can you have a prime minister just repeating fake news like that? Well, I have no idea of the backgrounds of Keir Starmer and I know that he... It's not true and the prime minister repeated it. It's an old meme that's just repeated by... Well, you know, there were things that Keir Starmer said that someone who was the former director of public prosecutions shouldn't have said at the dispatch box. He didn't say anything that wasn't true. He shouldn't have prejudged what a Met investigation was going to find. He didn't say anything that was untrue. Boris Johnson said something that was untrue. He said things that were inappropriate. He misled the House today. I, I don't believe that's the case. 
Well, it, it is, what, you're saying that Keir Starmer was responsible I don't for know, not I don't know the details. Well, that's what the Prime Minister said. But I don't, you haven't he shouldn't have said it, should he? Well, I think there are lots of things that Keir Starmer shouldn't have said. Well, there are clearly things that he said that aren't the Prime true. Minister now, whether, he would, the whether they were deliberate lies or not has yet to be established. But he's clearly said things to the House that were not true. The Prime Minister tells the truth. What's clear is that the Tories cheerleading this move don't seem to understand what they're actually arguing for. Ben Bradley MP tweeted this in response to Dory's announcement. Welcome this. The state doesn't need to be owning media. It made sense once when we had a handful of channels, but now we have a million choices. Channel 4 can't raise any of its own money, which holds it back. Money ends up being from the taxpayer. Let it free and it will compete. That tweet was quickly deleted, presumably because it's entirely untrue, as we've said already. Channel 4 isn't funded by the taxpayer. But just like with Dorries, Ben Bradley might have other motives to want to sell off Channel 4. This is the completely accurate introduction he received on Channel 4 News in 2019. The Conservative MP Ben Bradley is in the House of Commons. He voted to remain, then became a Brexiteer, then voted against the deal, then voted for the deal, then said he'd struggle to back the deal again, but now says he will back the deal. Ben Bradley, why do you get to change your mind? Of course, not all Tories are backing the move. Along with Julian Knight, Damien Green, Jeremy Hunt and Tobias Elwood have all publicly opposed the privatisation. But who will win out? The babies like Nadine Dorries and Ben Bradley throwing their toys out of the pram? Or the true heirs to Margaret Thatcher who want to save a channel she herself launched? Owen, who's going to win this one? They've got an AC majority, haven't they? I mean, it'll be interesting because it's got through the law. It's got to go through the Lords, and the Lords are going to put through lots of amendments. I don't think it's going to be popular amongst a lot of actually old-style Lords, to be perfectly honest with you. So it'll be interesting to see how that one, you know, in terms of the ping-pong between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But to be honest with you, we have heard some local Tory opponents there basically holding the kind of factor of flavour live. I think it was Kirsty Olsop who said on Twitter that Mrs. T would be spinning in her grave. I'm sure that's entirely true. Generally, like to privatise anything that wasn't screwed down, but nonetheless, she did balk at certain things. Actually, being privatised, she opposed the privatisation of Royal Mail in her time. She said, "This has the Queen's head on it. We can't tell this off." And Channel Four under her was on the basis that it would be a commercially funded alternative to the BBC that could provide public broadcasting, but without, but by by during the private sector was, was, was what funded and it relied on and it nurtured. But I think at the end of the day, there have been actually other issues where the government majority has been in peril. I would suspect only a handful of Tory MPs were actually going to end up voting against this. And I think there was a Tory MPs, to be honest with you, look at Channel 4 and regard it as culturally alien to Tory values because it caters to young audiences and minority audiences in particular. And I also think you know, they actually do think that Channel 4 News has been overly critical of the government. And just like Victor Orban in Hungary, any form of criticism and scrutiny from the media is something to be fine to be intolerable. I think on that basis, win this out. I suppose one, one challenge they might have is that this didn't appear in their manifesto and the House of Lords, basically, if they oppose some piece of legislation that was in a manifesto, it's sort of convention that they basically just cede and say, fine, you know, this is, we're, we're not elected. You got elected on this platform, so we're going to let this pass. Potentially, because this wasn't in the manifesto, they might play, you know, a bit tougher than they otherwise would. Although, I, you know, I never like relying on a bunch of unelected lords to try and save ourselves from aggressive conservative policies. 
Let's go straight to our next story. Already this month, energy prices have risen 54%, inflation is over 6%, and as of today, people face paying increased national insurance. But instead of helping the British people, Rishi Sunak seems intent on doing even more damage. The Telegraph reports that Rishi has blocked a plan that would make energy bills cheaper. The policy in question is the government's Green Homes Plan, which was set to provide £200 million to go towards home insulation and boiler upgrades. This was always, let's be clear, a paltry amount of money. But according to The Telegraph, tens of households would have benefited and the move would have been championed by the government as a boost to ease the cost of living crunch. But even at only £200 million, a paltry £200 million, less than the Sunak's net worth, the Chancellor has blocked the proposal. Bills shall remain high and Britain's homes drafty. And the move has left some of his colleagues fuming. A senior government figure said, it would have been something that we could say to households, we're on your side, we want to reduce your bills, but the Treasury doesn't believe in it. The source added that the Treasury had kept removing lines from the energy strategy that had spending implications, despite support from Number 10 and the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Calling the situation ridiculous. The defence from the Treasury was this. Telegraph right, an ally of Mr. Sunak counted on Tuesday night saying, we have to be scrutinising every extra penny of taxpayer money that is proposed for spending because ultimately we want to do the conservative thing and cut taxes for people. So just as we expected, they're not hiding this. The reason that even these scraping the barrel bare minimum policies aren't getting funding is that Rishi Sunak wants to cut taxes just before the next election. Owen Jones, how low will this guy go? Monkey, you're going to have to ask the question again. It's been an absolute technical nightmare. All I can say is I'm glad your, your audio was peaking and it does sound much better. So it's definitely oh, worth it. You okay. are all really? forgiven. Anyway, the question was about Rishi Sunak's plan or Rishi Sunak blocking, sorry, the government's plan to put forward a paltry £200 million to insulate people's homes. Rishi Sunak has said, no, £200 million is too much, even though you know I'm worth more than that. What do you make of it? Well, I think it exposes what Rishi Sunak always was, to be honest with you, which was a kind of Ayn Rand style roll back the state. Because he was he, the reason he had this popularity, bear in mind, he was the most popular politician in the country for quite a while, is because he was associated with furlough and throwing huge amounts of money at people during the COVID crisis. And that obviously was the support you got across the Western world. Now he's obviously associated with hiking national insurance, for example, and slashing universal credit. And the fact is, he is a, he's a right wing. Thatcherite, who actually clashes with some of the instincts of Boris Johnson, who doesn't have a clear, distinct ideology, but actually is more well disposed towards spending and using the state in a very Tory way, but nonetheless more statist. And fundamentally, Rishi Sunak is a right-wing ideologue who opposes using the state, including to combat the existential crisis facing humanity, which is the climate emergency. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, people wouldn't have watched it. No one did. But Andrew Neil on GB News before he jumped, he interviewed Rishi Sunak on the issue of uh, the net zero target. And in it, it was very clear that Rishi Sunak just was not comfortable at all with net zero or indeed the massive government support needed in order to take on the climate emergency. So it's not really a surprise. His so-called green credentials have always been very weak. So I think what's interesting is because we're seeing at the moment Rishi Sunak's approval ratings have collapsed. And the reason they've collapsed is because he's been exposed as a right-wing ideologue. And that actually goes against the instincts, not just of 
people on on the left, Labour voters, but actually some of the coalition that the Tories won over. I mean, bear in mind, yeah, it's true. On certain issues, a lot of those voters in various northern towns which traditionally voted for Labour are quite socially conservative. But the polling on issues like green issues, you know, it shows that in the so-called red wall, people do want action to take on the climate emergency. The idea that they're all a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who think, you know, who have no, who are indifferent to the future of the planet is, isn't true. So the fact Rishi Sunak isn't, isn't showing any indication that he wants to use the muscle of the state to take on the climate emergency, I don't think is going down well. Well, it won't go down well because it's already part of a general package which has exposed Rishi Sunak exactly as he was. He's a political fraud. He's been exposed for what he is, which is which is a, you know, actually very committed, hard right economic ideologue in a way Boris Johnson isn't actually. An incredibly rich one. So, you know, his scepticism of net Lonely. zero, maybe it's because he has three massive houses, four cars, as we talked about on a recent show. I want to talk about energy prices because this is why it's such bad timing to have a chancellor who's ideologically opposed to any kind of state intervention. The Telegraph published this pretty terrifying graph. The pale blue line shows the OBR's energy bill forecast. They predict that the average bill will rise to just under £3,000 by the autumn. But Goldman Sachs have released an even more stark forecast, saying bills will rise to just under £4,000 by October. And this is the context in which Martin Lewis has published a stark new guide for people struggling financially. It's a guide to surviving the cost of living crisis, important choice of words there. And it contains 90 tips, including this on getting free food, free KFC donuts, coffee, or even get paid to eat. So he's telling people, you know, essentially collect vouchers. He also has advice on food banks saying that sadly, 2.5 million food parcels had to be given away last year. There's no shame in it. Of course, there is no shame in it, but he's absolutely right. It's tragic that this many people are having to rely on food parcels. Perhaps, though, the starkest section in his guide was this. Boil and flask, hot showers in public places, creative ways to minimize energy use. Oh, in Martin Lewis's guide, full of great advice, he's been a very effective campaigner during this period of time. I mean, it is so stark, though, isn't it, that you've got you know the most high-profile guy who's telling you how to save money, and now he's telling you try and have a shower in a public place. You know, this is going to be... A really, really stark year for so many people, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's already said actually publicly that the tools he have available throughout his career to offer people who are struggling, he doesn't really have them anymore because things have got so bad. I think it's worth bearing in mind, by the way, that even before this current squeeze in people's living standards, since 2010, working people had gone through the longest squeeze in their wages in real terms since the Napoleonic era in the beginning of the 19th century. So you've always you already had this completely unprecedented squeeze in people's wages. Now, for a while, because of the pandemic, I think there was a narrative for a while that actually because there was such a demand now for labour, that actually you would see people's wages go up. And clearly now we're actually seeing the steepest fall in people's wages since records began. What that means, I think, is really, I think it is worth spelling it out. When you talk to charities, what that means, it means, for example, parents skipping hot meals in order to feed their children. That's what it means in practice. Uh, it means children too humiliated to invite their friends around for dinner. It means pensioners not heating their homes, going cold. It means 
It means things like not being able to afford school uniform. And it means, you know, sleepless nights, staring at ceilings, worrying about unopened energy bills on tables. Those are the sorts of experiences that right now millions of households have to go through. And for a while, the Tory mantra, which fueled the kind of George Osborne so-called welfare reform agenda, which is obviously slash and burn cuts to the welfare state, was that your salvation was work, that if you worked your way, then that was the way out of poverty and those the rest were so-called lazy scroungers and all the rest of it. But obviously, the reality is most households below the poverty line in this country are in work. And what they've done in terms of cuts to universal credit and tax credits before that and so on, is they've withdrawn support from low-paid work, low working households. So what, you, what you're seeing is this perfect storm, of course, because the welfare state, the security, social security system in this country has been cut to the bones whilst you're getting external shocks, which, yes, all of the countries are dealing with, which people in this country are particularly exposed to after already suffering such a protracted squeeze in wages. And this will have devastating consequences. I wrote a column the other week, which I just think is an important point to make. And I think sometimes on the left, we're squeamish about making this point, but it is important which is that poverty kills. I mean, it's a killer in this country because all the statistics show that those who are driven into poverty and hardship have lower life expectancies. They are more susceptible to various long-term health conditions, which obviously make people live less ha happy and healthy lives, but also live less long. I mean, that's everything from mental distress and, and mental and physical health problems can feed upon each other, anxiety, depression. It also means everything from high blood pressure, heart problems, for example. We know that children who grow up in overcrowded homes are more likely to have asthma. This is something which is going to actually not just make people feel insecure and having to make terrible choices like, do I feed, will I, will I have to skip my meal to make sure my kids fed? But it will also mean in a country where we've seen COVID disproportionately kill people who are poorer. And that just brought into sharp relief the fact that our economic system leads to people who are poorer, living less healthy and shorter lives. And that will be the consequence. People will die as a consequence of being driven into poverty, insecurity, and hardship. People might be squeamish about saying it, but it is a statistical, inarguable fact. There's one comment I want to read because it sort of links two stories we've been discussing tonight. It's from Alex J. Brady, who says, as a trans woman, showering in a public place is taking my life in my hands. I think that's a super important comment because I think it's showing, you know, perfect storms. I was talking about perfect storms there. Of You've got a, a government which is on the one hand starting and fueling this moral panic about trans people using basic public services. And on the other hand, you've got a government which is allowing energy prices to rise so high and not providing people with the money to pay them that you've got Britain's most high-profile money advisor telling people to go take showers in public. So if you are both subject to that energy crunch and the subject of this moral panic about you know, using changing rooms, etc., what are you supposed to do? So obviously, you know, solidarity to that commenter, but also like it's a, it's a super important point to raise at this point in time. Let's go to our final story. Also a Rishi Sunak one. With inflation set to hit 8%, Rishi Sunak has said Britons will inevitably need to tighten their belts. We're not getting 8% pay rises, meaning we're essentially poorer and funding for public services also isn't keeping up with inflation. In short, we're in a new age of austerity. 
But Rishi Sunak clearly doesn't think everyone should be cutting back. The Chancellor has generously provided over £100,000 of his own money to support education in Britain. But it's all gone to one school, Winchester College. Winchester is one of Britain's oldest and most prestigious private schools. It was founded in 1382 and school fees are currently £43,000 per year, which is almost one and a half times median incomes in Britain. Past students include Geoffrey Howe, who was Chancellor under Margaret Thatcher, Nick Carter, the current head of the British Army, James Forsyth, the current political editor of The Spectator, and his best mate, Chancellor Rishi Sunak. In total, four archbishops, six chancellors of the Exchequer, and one prime minister have been educated at the college. So how do we know Rishi Sunak is pumping cash into one of Britain's most exclusive schools? Well, it's because his name has appeared in Winchester's alumni magazine. You can see at the top here donors whose total donations to Winchester College are greater than £100,000, and then Rishi Sunak and his wife listed among the generous benefactors. Owen Jones, is Rishi Sunak a man who's got his priorities right? I think Winchester College, uh, obviously they're hard up, Michael, they're struggling. They've got, <laughs> they've, got, they've got to deal with children from such, obviously, very challenging backgrounds who need all the support they get. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, I think it's obviously interesting in this country because only 7% of children obviously go to private schools. And I think it's worth pointing that out because you'll often get these stories in the Telegraph which squeal about how private schools are struggling, about how so-called middle-class families can no longer afford their, their private school fees, when obviously 93% of the British population do not go to private schools. About 90% go to comps, 3% go to, go to grammar schools. And actually, in practical terms, you know, they don't need Rishi Sunak's hand in his wallet uh, and his family's wallet in order to sustain themselves, because they actually get in practice from the state charitable tax breaks, which are which you should class as actually di- as, as subsidies. They're, they're tax exemptions, things like VAT, for example, the fact they're classed as charitable status, which gives them various tax exemptions. So the fact that the Chancellor of the Exchequer himself, I mean, he is, look, he's a rich guy. I mean, if he's got a lot of money. He doesn't know what to do with it, which is, I think, a very good reason, actually, why he should obviously increase taxes on people like himself. And instead of frittering away his money on private schools, uh, which are catering for the richest people in the country, his money, I was going to say his hard-earned cash, it's not hard-earned cash, his money, his vast fortunes could be taxed in order to go into the state comprehensive system, uh, which, you know, under under Tory rule, the pupil funding has obviously been squeezed uh, and suffered real terms cuts. Teachers, obviously, their morale in many schools is at breaking point, the sixth form sector in this country. I, I mean, my old sixth form, which is the biggest sixth form, was the biggest sixth form in the country up in Stockport. You know, I discovered its budget was about a quarter of what it was when I was there. It's just absolutely astonishing. So there is obviously a real need for much of the education system to be properly funded. That's the comprehensive education system, not Rishi Sunak frittering away his money on on taxpayer de facto subsidised private education catering for people from the same elite background as him. We've got some stats on that that comparison between funding for state education and private education, because the gap between funding on state school and private school students, this is per student funding, has dramatically widened since the Tories came to power in 2010. 
at the end of 13 years of Labour government. An average of £11,000 was spent on private school students per year and £8,000 per year for state school pupils. 2021, funding for private school students had gone up to almost £14,000, while funding for state school pupils fell to 7000 So the funding gap between private and state school pupils has doubled. And this is the same information presented in a different way. So in 2010, spending on private school pupils was 40% more than spending on state school pupils was. By 2020, spending on private school pupils was a full double that, so 100% more than their state-educated peers. These are, of course, averages, so they actually understate quite how privileged Winchester students will be. At £43,000 per year, Winchester is around three times more expensive than your average private school, which means we can expect that for every pound spent on state students, £6 is spent on students at Sunak's old school. So this is this is who Sunak thinks he should be donating £100,000 to, or I should say at least £100,000. All we know is that the donation was larger than that. Let's just show you one positive in case you're feeling very depressed after hearing all of this. People have started to see Rishi Sunak for what he is. Ipsos Mori show that 44% of the public now have a negative attitude towards Sunak, with only 26% thinking of him favourably. And as you can see from the chart on the right, that's a dramatic turnaround from Rishi's recent numbers. I mean, you sort of intimated to this earlier in the show, but do you think Rishi Sunak has been found out? Is there basically no chance he is now going to be our next prime minister? Yeah, I think so, to be honest with you. As I've said, his his whole reputation was inflated because people in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when everyone was very scared and disorientated and there was a rally behind the flag effect, they suddenly started getting all this money appearing from the state in their bank accounts. And obviously that seemed to come from Rishi Sunak, the chancellor himself. They thought, woohoo, what a great guy. Very generous of him. Thank you very much. And, you know, even, I'd say, Rishi Sunak, some of the things he did, like Eat Out to Help Out, which was found responsible over the summer of 2020, I think for about one in six COVID clusters in in the country, uh, eat out and and kill someone, uh, as it turned out. But he also was very much allied to the anti-lockdown arguments in 2020. And before the people might remember, I mean, it's been a long pandemic, but in the, uh, there's that whole debate in the autumn of 2021, uh, 2020, oh, it really has been a long pandemic, or uh, the, the autumn of 2020, when in September the 21st, 2020, Sage said there should be an emergency circuit breaker. And the government didn't do that. And eventually, begrudgingly did it in November when infections had spiraled too high. And then we ended up with the so the Kent variant, which has been known as the Alpha variant. And Rishi Sunak brought in kind of anti-lockdown supposed experts into number 10 to help persuade the prime minister not to go into lockdown. So actually, he had a big role in the explosion of COVID then we saw in, in that terrible winter of 2020 and the consequences that meant for the economy. Because the argument we always made as people, you know, we didn't enjoy lockdown, we didn't want lockdown to happen, but we saw it as a, as a necessary evil, was that if you don't deal with the public health crisis, then you have a bigger economic crisis. Well, that didn't, um, unfortunately, filter through to the public, and he remained very popular. What has happened is his economic instincts, which are libertarian, right-wing, anti-state, do not accord with the spirit of the majority of people in Britain, including much of the Tory coalition. Bear in mind, in 2019, the Tories realised the sweet spot of the British electorate, certainly from a Tory perspective in in the current era, was socially conservative, 
and economically interventionist. A lot of the voters they got in supposed so-called red wall areas do not support slashing back on the state. They support a strong welfare state. And Rishi Sunak opposes all of that. So fundamentally, his ideology, and he is an ideologue, Boris Johnson isn't, his ideology and his instincts have simply collided with the instincts of most people in this country who don't support cutting back on universal credit, who don't support you know, failing to take drastic measures now to help with people's plummeting living standards. He believes the market should decide. He believes market forces are king. The vast majority of people in this country do not believe that. So fundamentally, Rishi Sunak has been found out, which is his political views, perfectly legitimate, but simply are a niche in the British public because right-wing libertarianism is very popular amongst certain commentators and certain think tanks, but it is not popular with the median voter in this country. Fundamentally, that's why his polling's collapsed. One thing I want to know is who else he donates to, because I think the defense from the Treasury is that, oh, Rishi Sunak's family, they donate to lots of different charities. This is just one of many. I can't really imagine these are the kind of charities that we, you know, I, I don't think it's the NSPCC. I imagine this is like the, the Heritage Fund for Fortnum and Mason or something. I imagine it's like all the poshest charities in Britain that he is donating, free tours for Emiratis around Harrods. Oh, what do you think we'll find out next, Owen, in terms of who this guy is generously funneling his money to? Oh, it's definitely the donkey sanctuaries of this country. He just loves donkeys. I don't know. I mean, the privileged children of this country need someone to champion them. And I'm just glad they've got Rishi Sunak. I'm glad that, that finally someone's got their back and it's our chancellor. I think we should applaud him for that. Bless him. He's just a caring man, Michael. He just, he just cares about the children of hedge fund managers and city financiers. And you obviously don't, which is spiteful. And, and that's the difference between you and Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak is a, a man of compassion who thinks that People born to stockbrokers in the home counties deserve the best possible chance in life. You clearly, you clearly don't. It's a shame. Yeah, you've let yourself down. You've let everyone for down. For decades, no one has been looking out for these people. Someone has got who, and I do feel ashamed. Let's end on that. Let's end on me sort of really looking inside myself and finding a bit more sympathy for the students of Winchester College. Yeah, um, I think you've changed been, for your own good. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll work on myself. Sorry about, sorry about the text roller coaster, but we, we made it eventually. All is forgiven. All is forgiven. We'll get you back on soon. Owen Jones, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you all for watching. We'll be back again on Friday, I suppose, at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>